Thank you, Neil, for that prayer. And hello, WPC. It's uh, great to see you all. What a privilege and joy to stand here before you to proclaim God's word. And my name is Robin Cho again, if you haven't met me yet, and I'm just overjoyed to finally, um, uh, to finally be here with you and to be blessed by meeting more and more of you. Uh, what, what, a, what a privilege and what a blessing. If you're newish to WPC, or maybe this is even your first Sunday, we want to welcome you in the name of the Lord. I know how difficult it is to try to find a new home, a new church home. We could be new together. Uh, so please uh, grab me after the service. I would love to uh, meet you and get to know you. But for the extended WPC family, uh, Neil and I will be working hard in the next several weeks and months to, to reach out to all uh, of WPC's uh, members and attenders. We're, we're really eager and truly thankful for this new season at WPC. And let's continue to spur each other on uh, as we pray for God's providential guidance. If you have your Bibles, please turn to today's passage in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or, or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. While seasons and life can change drastically, your word stands forever. We ask for your blessing as we now sit under the proclamation of your holy word. We pray this in the loving name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The word perpetual is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as continuing on for a long period of time without stopping or inter interruption. Or put in another way, someone who just never stops. You could be a perpetual learner, a perpetual sports enthusiast. Someone may call you a perpetual hard worker. Someone may call me a perpetual Culver's or Chick-fil-A patron, maybe. But my brother-in-law, on the other hand, is a perpetual handyman. My sister's family lives near Washington, D.C., and I'll tell you, my brother-in-law hardly ever, ever sits still. Innate to his core is this nonstop, perpetual thirst to build, fix, or renovate things. But earlier this year, he had a nasty accident with a, a power chainsaw that required a couple of surgeries to fix his wounded leg, and he's 
you know, pretty much back to normal now, thank the Lord. But while he was rehabbing, I was visiting over the summer, they had him on this cool peg leg device thing where he, where he would put his knee on a sturdy plastic device, the peg leg. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And he would get around the house that way. And if that happened to me, I, I don't think I'd move an inch for months. But for him, it was like nothing happened. He redid my niece's room, peg-legging up a ladder even. <laughs> he did all sorts of things in the backyard and in the shed again, building things. He is the epitome of the word perpetual. Well, there's someone in the Bible that reminds me of the word perpetual, and that's the Apostle Paul. We see in the scriptures that Paul is perpetually shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was everything to him. And we'll see why in a minute. But first, allow me to introduce briefly our new series on the book of Galatians titled Gospel Freedom. Neil and I will be going through this book along with some guest preachers, Lord willing, all the way up to Christmas. And Galatians is a critical letter, a foundational letter for the early church when attempting to understand what the gospel actually is. what the gospel, how the gospel works and so forth, and how the gospel of Jesus Christ liberates, grants freedom to believers from the bondage of self-righteousness and the tyranny of sin and counterfeit gospel. Phil Riken calls Galatians the letter for recovering Pharisees. And of course, as the reformers rediscovered some 500 years ago, Galatians is about the wonderful truth of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so the letter not only addresses these critical truths, but also leads us down the path of what it is to live the life in the spirit of Christ, to forsake the old and discover the fruit of the spirit and how we can live to glorify our great God as a unified body of believers in that freedom of the gospel. We truly hope you will glean much from our journey through this book. And let's pray, church, for open hearts and minds all along the way. But back to the main point I said a minute ago. Paul, the author of this letter, is perpetually shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this play out in today's text in three ways. By number one, staying faithful to his calling. Number two, staying anchored to the gospel. And finally, number three, staying true to this gospel of Jesus Christ. Staying faithful to his calling staying anchored to the gospel and staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, staying faithful to his calling. If you look at your Bibles again, verse 1 through 2, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman notes that Paul usually introduces himself as an apostle in his letter. That's not uh, strange, but what's strange, he notes, is that he puts an emphasis on who called him as an apostle. Nobody but Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Christ from the grave called and sent Paul as an apostle. The word apostle means to be a messenger, a sent one. Theologians such as Charles Spurgeon note that there is a greater context here that showed Paul was under scrutiny from Galatian believers and some who were critical and skeptical of Paul's credentials. Who is this guy? What authority does he have? He wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't with Jesus directly in his earthly ministry and so forth. So Paul, much like many of his other letters, is continually on defense when it comes to his position as an 
called out apostle of Jesus Christ. And when you're getting a letter like this, you're already aware from the first sentence something is up. Here we go. This is not going to be some, how was your summer away? How's the family doing? Paul means business because there are serious matters in the contents of this letter. And Paul, continually team player, announces that he is with all the other brothers who are aiding him in this gospel ministry to the Gentiles. But notice at the end of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Scholars note that it's difficult to ascertain who the Galatians actually were. The region is very broad in that Roman province, and so were its inhabitants. He is addressing churches that are plural. It's kind of like saying to all the Chicagoans, but you don't know what that really means geographically, or to uh, maybe a more accurate statement, to all the Midwesterners out there. But again, perhaps some of, or many, weren't eager to get a letter from the Apostle Paul to begin with, because he had many critics, many confused congregant members. But Paul isn't concerned, though. He's not going to back down. He didn't need to be knighted by others or the original apostles to be called one. He did consider himself the least of these apostles of 1 Corinthians 15 as one untimely born. But nevertheless, Paul was commissioned not by man, but directly from Christ himself. This is a divine calling. And so he thinks, I need to step up and not worry about the criticism. Because again, Paul is perpetually shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by any man. And this shows because, again, point number one, he's staying faithful to his calling from Christ as an apostle. And this will come up again wonderfully, almost like a bookend to today's passage in verse 10. But let's go now to our second point in phrase, number two, by staying anchored to the gospel, verses three through five. Paul is perpetually shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ by staying anchored to the gospel. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us or to who has rescued us from the present evil age, meaning this age of sin and rebellion, according to the will of our God and Father to him to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul started with an almost aggressive, defensive tone, then unleashes this beautiful doxology in his next breath. What a lovely word of encouragement that is common in his letter. Letters, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Grace is that word of God's unmerited kindness and favor towards us. Not earned, not even one bit, but grace is a free gift. And when we try to repay God for this grace, maybe some of the people in Galatia were struggling with this, this unmerited favor. When you're trying to repay God for that, that's like getting a birthday gift from someone and immediately handing them an envelope full of cash in return. Oh, thank you so much. Here's $100. But grace to you is that wonderful pronouncement of the love of God towards you. It's a free gift of unmerited favor. Peace, which comes right after and not before grace, comes after grace because peace is what happens after we are reconciled back to the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ by his grace. Where once, the Bible tells us, there was once enmity and hostility between us and God. There is now peace 
because of the finished work of Christ. It doesn't mean that life is going to be without strife or that you'll necessarily experience some blissful emotion all the time, but rather, peace is a result of status change. No longer enemies, but friends of God. So Paul doesn't throw around religious jargon for formality's sake, but there is actual real significance within these terms. You know, I used to do this exercise with a previous church called ATB, Articulating the Basics, because I, I knew over, over many years of ministry that even if some believers grew up in church, that many of them would have difficulty explaining basic, important terms from the Bible. This was just one of those things that, oh, I know, I know what that means, but I'm having a hard time actually articulating, explaining that well to maybe someone I might meet on the street. Grace and peace are hopefully words that we can articulate and cherish and thank God for to ourselves and others to know these things well. And what's another important word to articulate and to be reminded of constantly? It's that word, the gospel. The gospel. Paul, before he has to address some hard topics in the coming verses, immediately goes to reminding the Galatians what the gospel actually is. At the end of verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. This is the gospel. Already in the first several verses, we see the gospel is the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the will of our God and Father. This is the gospel. I remember one of my favorite professors at Trinity, not too far from here, D.A. Carson, would say often to our class, I mean, I'm not joking, like he would repeat this often. The phrase, the gospel is something God has done for you, not something we do for God. I mean, that was just ingrained in my mind, going to his class. That the gospel is something God has done for you, not something we do for God. Of course, when we receive the gospel, of course, we want to love God and neighbor, and there is a response. But the actual gospel is what God and only God has done for us, not what we do for him. But you see, the Pharisees of their day, 2,000 years ago, those religious, prestigious leaders who were only concerned about outward obedience and adherence, just the external things, understood the gospel as what we do and perform for God and how God will then repay us and bless us for those things. That's completely backwards. That's not too uncommon to hear even in our context today. That's why we're all recovering Pharisees, because this is so ingrained in us. No, the gospel is precisely the pronounced, heralded message that God has redeemed his people by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins on that rugged cross so that we may be forgiven, justified, and sanctified, meaning set apart for him, that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, before we can guard against false gospels in the next passage, let us never assume the gospel. Perpetual rehearsal of what the true gospel entails is not a trivial task for the church, and it wasn't a trivial matter for Paul either. Speaking of D.A. Carson again, he once told us about a certain denomination in a particular region of the country, maybe over 100 years ago, 
that truly had a strong grasp of the Bible, gospel, and gospel ministry. But that generation eventually died, and the next one went totally awry from the gospel and biblical teaching. Why? Because there was an assumption of the gospel, he says. There was an assumption between those two generations that they knew the gospel inside and out and didn't need to prevail upon the treasuring of what that gospel is and how the gospel affects every part of our daily life. When you do that, when you assume, as perhaps some of these Galatians were doing, you will eventually drift back into your former ways. Let us never assume the gospel. Paul was so anchored to the gospel, though, that it informed his calling, as we see, his ministry, his interactions, and his identity. You know, I, I love biking next to Lake Michigan in Chicago, where I currently live. For the last two summers, uh, you'll just see me with my hair blowing and with my <laughs> headphones in, and everyone is smiling, and I'm smiling, I'm ringing my bell, and <laughs> just greeting everybody. It's, it's great. But the long and relaxing lakeshore trail goes on for miles and miles, but there's one part, when the sun is out, if the sun is out and it's a nice day, you'll see hundreds of boats lined up in the water near the shore, all uniformly located where people can enjoy their company over food and drink. It's a, it's a lovely sight. How they don't drift and crash into one another is a marvel. But we know why. Because they're all perfectly anchored where they're at. This is the image I get when I think of the apostolic ministry of Paul. He was so anchored by the gospel of Christ that no matter what type of waves or storms come about, he trusts that the redeeming work of Christ and his gospel will hold him. And that goes back to our main thought, that Paul is perpetually, resolutely shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ by staying anchored to this gospel. Now to our last point and phrase that comes from verses 6 through 10, staying true to the gospel. If you look at your Bibles again, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, he's including himself here, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I heard of one, I think, well-known illustration of this, that Paul focused so much on preaching the straight stick, and that when you keep going back to that straight stick, you'll notice very quickly any other crooked sticks that come about. And so some preachers might want, as the illustration goes, want to always comment on the crooked sticks out there and all the false things. But as the illustration goes, I think I got this from Charles Spurgeon, that if you focus first and most centrally on that straight stick, oh, people will notice when something is off. Well, the problem at hand here in the churches in Galatia that were that some people within the churches in Galatia are not staying true to this gospel. They forgot their priorities. They've heard the gospel. Many of them have received the gospel well at the beginning, but now they have been swayed and tricked into returning to former ways and listening to distorted gospel, maybe because they assumed the gospel. 
And what was this distorted gospel in the context here was mainly a works-based righteousness that so many of these former Pharisees were thought to have left behind. The word for deserted in verse 6 is a military term, when a soldier would leave his post and join the other side. And this isn't some minor argument between, let's say, two reform groups today. This is a wholesale denunciation of the true gospel. And although the opponents aren't mentioned by name here, the biblical context, and even of this book, is that of those who were called Judaizers. Those who wanted to retain the Jewish pharisaical traditions that taught that this was necessary also to be saved. Yes, Jesus is fine, but you have to do all the other Jewish traditions also to be saved, namely circumcision. So Paul dealt with this even in many other letters, these Judaizers who want to infiltrate and distort. Paul is not merely angry because he's some hot-tempered person. But there's urgency in his tone because these are eternal matters with eternal consequences. If people truly are fooled this way, those amongst these churches that are enlightened with the gospel have quickly left that teaching and gone another way. The term for distorted, if you see that in verse 7, has the meaning of changing something from the original. It's actually not a word that says, okay, here's something completely new, but it's assuming new characteristics taking the original and adding or subtracting. You see, these false gospels had many similarities to the original gospel of Christ, but were added onto and slightly modified here and there to their own agenda. And that's what's so dangerous about false gospels, even today, because they might include and keep a large portion of the original, but they pull you away with that last bit of erroneous alterations. So again, even when you think about contemporary examples, we're not too concerned about some new religious group forming and calling everyone to worship made-up aliens in outer space. That's not really going to bother me. That's just crazy. But we should be concerned, as Paul was, with the many different quote-unquote gospels out there that use much of our gospel and Christian language but distort in the most critical but maybe even subtle places. Now, of course, Paul rightly notes that there isn't actually a variety of Gospels to receive, as if the Gospel had different flavors and you pick the one that you like the most. No, there is only one true Gospel, Paul says, and that's the one passed down to the apostles from Jesus Christ. Look at the text there, actually, in verse 6 through 9. Try to see the repeated words. The word Gospel, in the Greek, it's euangelion, means good news. That's mentioned four times in verses 6 through 9. But also notice the word for preach. It's a derivative of that root word of euangelion, euangelizo, that is mentioned three times. There is an emphasis on preaching, which is heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ, highlighting the ministry of the word, where Paul also mentions in Romans 10, the faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And he says, of this word of faith that we have proclaimed, it goes hand in hand, the gospel and preaching. And these counterfeit teachers were infiltrating the church of their day and tricking some of these members by preaching and heralding a distorted message. What was the main message of this distorted and different gospel? It was the message, again, to go back to Pharisaism. 
Pharisaism was that concept of the Pharisees to follow strict outward observation of the law, including many other man-made laws passed down to them over the centuries. Their righteousness, or we should say self-righteousness, was based on how well they kept up with their religious duties and appearance. That's why they thought made them right before the eyes of God. And this type of gospel is an affront to God and is actually entirely anti-good news. See, the biblical true gospel is the opposite and proclaims that actually Christ is the only righteous one who lived in actual perfect obedience in his life through his perfect death. And through the gift of faith, by grace, we get credited with his righteousness. And he paid for all our unrighteousness on the cross. We call that the great exchange. How marvelous and glorious indeed. That's good news. And perhaps many in the churches thought so too. Until those false teachers with their eloquence came in to infiltrate with their very persuasive tactics and words. Seems like many did turn away. But there is a present tense there in these verses. It's almost like they have one foot out the door, but not completely. And so Paul has this urgency. Oh, don't be tricked. Come back to the pure, true gospel. Pharisaism is that plague that inflicts all parts of the being. We experience this temptation and struggle too. Because this is from sin. We've all experienced this. To stand before a holy God and say, I'm good enough, aren't I? I'm, I'm I have enough years of faithful following under my belt. I'm, I'm pleasant enough, right, God? I'm obedient enough. Again, that's an affront to God. Pharisaism is like trying to Lysol or Febreze yourself every once in a while thinking, that will keep me clean for a time being. Maybe you do this at your home, maybe once a week, and you feel better, like, okay, it's disinfected and it smells nice. But then next Sunday will come along or next Saturday or whatever, whenever you do that, and you say, oh, here, i got to go through that again. That's Pharisaism. Okay, I've done all these things for a week. Then next week, let's just start all over again. Earn God's favor. You know, I grew up in a very legalistic, performance-based, outwardly religious-based framework at a church. I won't go into the details here, but I really thought that to earn a place in heaven, it was really based on my behavior and my restrictions of certain things. How wrong that was. And it wasn't until my... Uh, mid-twenties, that the unconditional grace of God through Jesus Christ, that started to make finally sense to me in a very clear and profound way. I was a sinner needing the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ completely is the word. Not partly and somehow I need to add my last bit, but completely is what is offered freely. Well, Paul repeats himself in verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one he received, let him be accursed. This is so serious. These false teachers should be accursed, or in another way to translate that, banned, thrown out, discarded, in the sense of that word, cut off from that community. You know, at a previous church, I was having membership interviews with a larger than normal group of individuals at that time. And I soon realized that many of these individuals who mostly grew up in church were influenced in their upbringing at many different churches by different gospels. Oh, sure, they could talk about church, Jesus, certain doctrines, but when it came down to the actual gospel and how one is saved, I was astonished 
at how much difference there were in their answers, but also compassionate. I know sometimes it's just hard. You hear all these things, and, and to actually say what you believe can be difficult, but I was astonished at the variety of answers. I think we take that for granted. Dorothy Sayers, a prolific British author and Christian who lived in the first half of last century, wrote in her work, Letters to a Diminished Church, this, quote, the brutal fact is that in this Christian country, not one person in a hundred has the faintest notion what the church teaches about God or man or society or the person of Jesus Christ. And it's fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of healing and hopeless to offer Christianity as a vaguely idealistic aspiration of a simple and consoling kind, end quote. This was in England in the 1900s. What about America today? Do we assume, do we assume brothers and sisters, that many more would be able to answer what the true gospel really is or who Jesus Christ is? Or has Christianity been portrayed merely as a symbol, a touchy-feely good experience, a cultural thing, a just-be-a-good-person-and-everything-will-be-okay therapeutic sentiment? I would say it's even worse now. See, the early church's emphasis on heralding and preaching the gospel seemed to be top of the list, even for their opponents. But in today's context, to our disappointment, the church today is moving steadily towards a de-emphasis on preaching and word ministry. Not only is there a problem of distorted alternative gospels out there, we could list out hundreds, but there is also a belittling and bemoaning of preaching in the first place. Paul is saying, anchor yourself personally in sound gospel preaching and teaching but you know what? The church also needs to stay true and anchored and faithful to sound gospel preaching and teaching. No distortions, no compromises, no additions or subtractions. The integrity of the church rests on this. And we see this with all the distorted gospels out there. Again, we can list hundreds. But lately, there's so much have faith in Jesus, but plus something else. Certain idealistic thoughts certain traditions, certain behavior modifications. Go on and on. It's faith in Jesus plus, 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 and on and on. That's a false gospel. Or you might have experienced this in your years. Yes, Jesus is great, but you need certain spiritual experiences first to get to heaven. You need to manifest certain spiritual gifts in order to be truly saved. The biggest one is, truly, be religious, be Christian. But here are 10 other things that you need to do. Now, verse 10, our final verse, is like a bookend, as mentioned earlier, to the whole passage and is a helpful transition even for next week. I'll read verse 10 again for, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Or we're still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, it might have been way easier for Paul to actually revert to this different gospel, just personally speaking, and also become a Judaizer. Since he was a great Pharisee before he got converted, he would have been way more popular, way more accepted in these circles, we can imagine. But Paul can't sell out to the naysayers. Won't. He has been called by God and not by man as an apostle to deliver and proclaim the true gospel certainly doesn't need to live 
And as he stays faithful to the message of Jesus Christ and of the cross, he will continue to be a servant of Christ. You can almost hear Paul say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. God, make my path straight. I follow your gospel. I really do see this. Over the many letters in the New Testament, Paul was perpetually shaped, was so shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw them three ways, by staying faithful to his calling, staying anchored to the gospel, and staying true to this gospel of Jesus Christ. And for application, church, don't you also want to perpetually and resolutely be shaped and led by the gospel of Jesus Christ too? I want that. I will pray for that my heart for your heart, not only in a seasonal way, but in an ever-growing and increasing way. Well, this is where the applications comes in. By God's grace, truly by God's empowerment and his grace alone, through faith, we simply can turn points two and three into imperatives. Stay anchored to the gospel and stay true and faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stay anchored to the gospel and don't ever get tired of hearing about the gospel. I love Derek Prime, an old godly British preacher, probably in his late 80s and 90s, once said that healthy Christians love to hear the gospel told again. It never gets tired or boring for healthy Christians. And so anchor yourself in stormy or calm waters to verses 3 through 4, the gospel. Christ died for your sins. Hey, church, if you ever email me and say, hey, Raman, I just wanted to remind you and encourage you, brother, that Christ died for your sins as you are in Christ. Robin, your name is written in the book of life, so rejoice. I'm not going to sit there on my computer and roll my eyes and think, doesn't this person know? Like, I went to seminary. I've been a pastor for 12 years. I already know this. I got this. Now, why are they bombarding me with these emails? Never. I'm never, ever going to feel that way. Keep them coming. Because we need to encourage each other to anchor ourselves to Christ, to his gospel. Not anchor ourselves to a potential vaccine on the way or for our personal finances to get better or to get a better job or for our grades or resumes to improve. Those aren't bad things, of course, but in terms of anchoring our whole lives around something, who or what better than Jesus Christ and his church? Stay anchored, brothers and sisters. And lastly, Stay true to the gospel. We said again. We said this before, never assume the gospel. When you assume you have this all down, that's when you slip and slide away from the core. Perhaps some of the gospel, uh, Galatians thought they knew the gospel, pass, gospel passed down to the apostles inside and out, yet the proof was in the pudding. They didn't actually receive this gospel in faith. And to see that understanding of the gospel nurtured in their hearts over and over again, this is probably why they were so easily bamboozled. One theologian said, every night we experience some semblance of spiritual amnesia. I love that quote. That every night we experience some semblance of spiritual amnesia. Basically saying every morning we need to be reminded again of Christ, his gospel, and actually our identity now in union. In union with him. What a marvelous reminder Indeed, because if we neglect the gospel indicatives and our identity in Christ, we become slow and sluggish. 
to see how the gospel applies to everyday life. And so every day we need to ask God to remind us of these core truths so that we do not desert the truth, that we don't get misled by mere eloquence or a trendy blog or a, a fun podcast that seeks to distract. This is why we need church community. Yes, brothers and sisters, our personal union to Jesus Christ is a wonderful and marvelous thing. And he has called us to live in church community also. Discuss and talk with one another, to sharpen each other. Hey, are we tracking, are we staying on track with the truth? With what the Bible teaches us about the gospel? Are we adding anything to this? Are we subtracting anything? Hey, Robin, I, I, I was listening to this really cool podcast and I heard something that sounded a little bit different. Can, can you help me here? Do that amongst yourselves sharpen each other. We need to be vigilant, not just from the pulpit, but in our community life. Because we can never. You know, I've read through and have been personally taught by some of the most learned and godly theologians and pastors anyone could ask for. But I should never assume the gospel. I should never assume that I have all this down. I should never dare think that I can't backslide away from the truth. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints? You better believe. I believe that God preserves the saints until the very end, but that doesn't entail a mindless assumption that we can put the gospel and Christ on the shelf, sort of in your life and then the periphery, but never centered in everyday life. We can't do that. Brothers and sisters, we need to, I need to be careful of that potential type of careless disposition. Never assume the gospel if you want to stay true gospel. And I'll tell you what, I'll never assume that this historic gospel-centered church, Westminster Presbyterian Church, has enough of gospel proclamation either. I'll never assume that you don't need to hear the gospel, even at the most basic articulation. I'll never assume we don't need to go back to the cross and marvel at the grace and mercy of what God has done for us. And this world, phew, in our day and age, needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, stay anchored and stay true to this truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the convictions from today's passage and word. We thank you for our body of Christ that reveres your word. We thank you that the true gospel of Jesus Christ has also been passed down to us. Thanks be to God. So help us, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, to stay true and anchored to your truth. Oh, and thank you, God, that we are united in faith, by grace, to the Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's merciful name we pray. Amen.